everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm Suzanne Kiampoir with the BBC. And it's no secret that the Iran deal is hanging in the balance. I mean, over the course of the campaign, we heard Donald Trump, now President Donald Trump, uh, say how it was the worst deal ever, etc., and how he promised to um, bring his deal-making skills into the White House and bring us a better deal. So we have a stacked panel today, starting with uh, Michael Pregent, who is a fellow here at Hudson Institute. And his background is intelligence officer in Iraq, where he focused on Iranian lethal aid. And we have Gary Seymour, who has come down and brought the sunshine from Boston for us. Um, he's currently at Harvard. Uh, uh, he was the White House coordinator for arms control and uh, weapons of mass destruction. So um, he knows his stuff. And Trina Parsi, who is with the National Iranian American Council and also has a book coming out, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. So we're going to get right to it. There's a lot to discuss. This is a very complicated deal, um, a lot of options. And uh, we'll start with Mike. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Um, I'm here at the Hudson Institute, and we want to do something a little different uh, with the whole think tank mentality. I'd like to actually have people here that disagree with me, and who better than that than Trudeau Parsi to be able to talk about these things. And I learned something in Iranian today, and I'm going to practice it here. Ruse Jadida Dar Washington. That means it's a new day in Washington because the Iran deal is now under the Trump administration. Um, the the thing that I definitely want to focus on, well, also, the reason I'm not wearing a tie is the guys that didn't wear ties won. The Iranian negotiators won. They got the best out of the Iran deal, so that's the reason for not having a tie today. And I'd just like to say the Iran deal is working great. It's working exactly as it's supposed to, and it's working great for Iran. It's working great for Iran's proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas. It's working great for Iran's proxies in Iraq, Assad al-Haq, League of the Righteous, which killed Americans and maimed Americans in Iraq. It's working great for Qatab Hezbollah. It's working great for Iranian proxies in the Middle East, and it's also working great to destabilize the northern Middle East. Um, I was also a director of Veterans Against the Iran deal. I was asked to do this because I was an intelligence officer. I worked for General Petraeus, uh, General Ordierno. I've served under General Mattis. And the first thing Mattis told us at CENTCOM was, I go to sleep thinking about three things, Iran, Iran, and Iran. So I worked for these for these uh, great commanders. Okay, I didn't mean it doesn't mean I always agreed with them. They'll always remember me as a guy uh, banging my my fist on the desk saying that you know we can't we can't do work with certain individuals in the Iraqi government because they are indeed uh, more beholden to the Shia political parties in Iran than they are to the Sunnis, Christians, and Shia nationalists and Kurds in Iraq. So. Going back to that, um, I worked uh, lethal aid in Iraq. And what that is is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps' uh, strategy to use proxies in Iraq to target Americans. And not only target Americans, but also target Iraqis. Um, so, so I came at it from a different perspective as a director of Veterans Against Iran deal. When I engaged with Democrat senators and, and, and congressmen and women, I came at it uh, and argued that the non-nuclear concessions in the Iran deal 
or more destabilizing than the Iran deal itself. And when I talked to General Mattis and General Allen about this in 2015, both said the nuclear part of the Iran deal, okay, is probably the best we're going to get at this time. But when I talked about the non-nuclear concessions made, meaning, uh, you know, taking Qasem Soleimani off the sanctions list, taking Mohammad Reza Nakhdi, the besieged commander, off the sanctions list, taking uh, shipping companies, freights, uh, banks, that all had a, a history of violating existing UN Security Council resolutions and also uh, supporting terrorism and procuring illicit military materials for a, an Iranian nuclear program that they weren't supposed to have. So I was able, using veterans from West Virginia and from Maryland, to convince both uh, Senators Manchin and Cardin to oppose the Iran deal, not because of the number of centrifuges, not because of what the IEA was going to be able to do, was it was because of Iran's continued support to terrorism and their hegemonic goals in the region. And that is so important because the Iran deal under the Obama administration constrained the administration. Uh, Leon Panetta said it best, if we went against Iran's strategic interests in Syria, they would walk away from the Iran deal. If we went against Iran's strategic interests strategic interest in Iraq, they would walk away from the Iran deal. If we went against Iran's strategic interests in the Middle East and North Africa, they'd walk away. And, and that's why I wanted to, to, to ask a diverse group of panelists to, to weigh in on what the Trump or what the Iran deal will look un, like under a Trump administration. Because I can assure you that Mattis will not be constrained by the Iran deal that General Flynn will not be constrained by the Iran deal, uh, that President Trump will not be constrained by the Iran deal. Uh, the, one, the one thing that I said, I, so I actually introduced Senator Cruz, and Cruz introduced Donald Trump, if you look at that picture on the screen. And when I introduced Donald Trump, I said, if you don't know who Qasem Soleimani is, you cannot vote for the Iran deal. Trump did not know who Qasem Soleimani was at the time. He thought we were talking about Soleimania, Iraq. So, so I was hit by Politico and some other news media outlets for, for throwing Trump under the bus. I'm not a like-minded guy. I, I, I'm not, you know, I wasn't there to say, you know, Trump at the time believed that the Iran deal was bad because they weren't buying from the United States. We didn't secure a military equipment contract with Iran. Uh, his advisors have, are now telling him it's a bad deal because Iran is more emboldened post-JCPOA, post-the Iran deal. Uh, they're better able to destabilize the Middle East and North Africa. And, you know, we had a, we had a little debate, Chuda and I did on CNN, and, you know, I, I said there are two organizations that are losing donors and losing influence in Washington, D.C., post the Trump, Trump win. Uh, that's the Clinton Foundation. And it's NIAC. <laughs> okay. Uh, we know that NIAC had a lot of access to the White House. Um, recent media outlets have put out uh, disparaging, disparaging op-eds or disparaging pieces on the, the level of influence Iranian lobbyists had with the Obama administration. I would argue that it was probably the easiest job in Washington, D.C., when all you had to do was convince uh, Ben Rhodes that it was a good idea. Um, that's not going to be the, the case with, with, a, with a, a General Flynn and a Dan O'Brien. Uh, 
I worked with General Flynn since 97. I've, I've known Dan O'Brien when I was in the Defense Intelligence Agency. And again, this is not against the Iranian people. We want the Iran deal to actually become a, an economic benefit for the Iranian <coughs> people. But so far, we see it uh, continuing to fuel the IRGC's uh, support for terrorism in the region. Uh, Hezbollah's better off. Assad is better off. The Iraqi militias tied to Iran are better off. Iran is better off. So everything is working. And the one thing that I'll close with this, Trump doesn't have to rip up the Iran deal. He simply has to enforce the Iran deal. And all he has to do is end the secret side deals, continue to deny Iranian companies with IRGC stakeholders access to the U.S. banking system, and enforce non-nuclear-related sanctions against human rights abusers, against supporters for terrorism, and other groups. The Obama administration put immense pressure on Democrats in Congress not to support sanctions legislation not tied to the Iran deal. All you have to do is simply enforce existing UN Security Council resolutions and increase them. And I would argue that if Iran bluffs about walking away from the table, it will be the P5 plus one members that will ensure that it stays at the table. And this Iran deal actually turns out to be something that we can actually make work. Thank you. Gary. So having worked in the White House a couple of times, I can kind of imagine the options memo that will be prepared for President Trump as they do their review of the Iran deal. And there are three obvious options. The first option is to renege on the agreement, which President Trump can do through executive action, uh, simply by uh, withdrawing the current um, presidential waivers for sanctions or simply not renewing them. In fact, the first need for renewal comes up on May 18th when the NDAA oil sanctions expire, unless the Secretary of State extends the waiver for another 100, 120 days. So if President Trump wants to, he can let the deal die. Now the obvious disadvantage with that is if the other P5 plus one countries see the United States as being responsible for killing the agreement without just cause, they're not going to be supportive and they're going to be much more um, they're going to be much more reluctant to resume the international sanctions that were necessary in order to get the agreement in the first place. And the Iranians are likely to resume some of the nuclear activities which are currently suspended or limited under the agreement. And depending upon what Iran does, that will that could pretty quickly put the issue of U.S. or Israeli military force back on the table. And from the standpoint of President Trump, who said his top priority is defeating Islamic State, that could be a distraction. So a second option is to renegotiate, to try to get a better deal. Um, and I, of course the Iranians have uh, said they're not prepared to renegotiate, but I don't think they can reject out of hand a U.S. proposal to improve or strengthen the agreement if it's backed by the other P5 plus one. Now, the other P5 plus one are not going to support an effort um, to renegotiate the deal if they think it's just a clever way to destroy it. In other words, any U.S. offer has to be credible. It has to appear not to be designed for the Iranians to reject it. And I think in order to be credible, any offer to renegotiate has to include additional sanctions relief. 
Uh, now, so far, I don't see much evidence that the Trump administration is prepared to offer additional sanctions relief to Iran in exchange for additional constraints on its nuclear activity or additional limits on its activities in the region. Uh, I think that would be a smart thing to do, but the sentiment seems to be, if anything, to increase sanctions. And certainly the pressure from Congress and from U.S. allies in the region will be to put more sanctions on Iran, not to offer to to lift them. And one of the early tests for the Trump administration will be whether they support congressional legislation that has the effect of taking away some of the sanctions relief that Iran uh, got under the JCPOA. For example, there's a bill that uh, Congressman Peter Hoscombe has put forward called the Terrorism Free Skies Act which would, in essence, it would add new conditions to the sale of Boeing um, civil aircraft to Iran Air and probably block the sale. So it would begin to pick apart some of the, uh, some of the benefits that Iran gets under the nuclear deal. And presumably the Iranians would retaliate by beginning to pick apart some of the nuclear concessions they've made. In fact, they, in fact the Iranians have already committed some minor violations of the agreement in order to uh, register their unhappiness with, with what they consider to be inadequate sanctions relief. So one could get into a situation where we're imposing more sanctions, they're beginning to chip away at the nuclear uh, concessions, and the deal begins to unravel. The third option is to, um, for President Trump to decide to abide by the deal, to enforce it, and to focus instead on dealing with um, other threats from Iran in the region. That's probably the option that would be favored by the U.S. foreign policy establishment, uh, certainly by the P5 plus one, and I think even by U.S. allies in the region, possibly with the exception of Prime Minister Netanyahu. But that's sort of the safe choice. The deal, for better or worse, constrains Iran's nuclear program for a number of years. Why, uh, you know, reopen the issue? Why not focus on dealing with the other ways in which Iran threatens the U.S. and U.S. allies in the region? Um, but I think it's important to recognize that that approach doesn't mean that the nuclear deal is safe, because efforts the U.S. will take to counter Iran in the region have the possibility of increasing tension and undermining the agreement. The best example I can think of is the IRGC Navy's uh, irresponsible action in the Persian Gulf, where they've been harassing uh, uh, ships from the Fifth Fleet. And the Obama administration was incredibly restrained, I think, in response to those actions. Well, I could easily imagine a Trump administration relaxing the rules of engagement, and that could lead to a fatal skirmish in the Persian Gulf. And, you know, the Iranians might retaliate by ordering their Shia militia in Iraq to target American servicemen again. So one could imagine an escalation of tensions between the U.S. and Iran that would also undermine the political uh, support for the deal. So to conclude, as people uh, probably know, I've never been very confident this deal would last 15 years for a variety of reasons. On balance, though, I think it's unlikely that the Trump administration will kill it outright, because that's not a very smart thing to do, and I think the U.S. normally does a smart thing. But I could see the agreement uh, dying through a series of a thousand cuts, 
over a period of time through smaller actions taken by the U.S. and Iran in a sort of tit-for-tat situation, and then um, against the background of greater tensions between the U.S. and Iran over regional issues, support for terrorism, Syria, Iraq, and so forth. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's long been one of my dreams to be able to address the Hudson Institute audience, and I want to really thank Michael for making that dream come true. Um, I think there actually is a couple of things here that Michael said that I think uh, builds on what I was going to address. Uh, but before I go into that, I want to first remind people about what is so different about this current situation, particularly for the folks who have been following this issue for more than 10 or so years. The fact that we're actually sitting here talking about an existing functioning deal between the United States and Iran and five other countries and the potential of it surviving the next American president, I think it tells you how wrong a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment have been, particularly the critics of this deal, because they always said that the Iranians would never negotiate with the United States. Once that started happening, they said, well, they're never going to be able to agree to a deal because it would go against the very pillar of the Islamic Republic to be able to strike a deal with the United States. But when that proved to be wrong, they said, well, the Iranians are never going to live up to the agreement. And now we have several IEA reports and statements saying that thus far, overall, things are actually looking quite good. So at some point, my hope is that people go back and start reassessing their assumptions uh, because it cannot possibly be that fun to be wrong so many times in a row. It does give a prediction of how things will go in the future. Now, Michael said something that I thought was actually quite interesting. And that is the fact that at the end of the day, the opposition to this deal um, on the surface was about the nuclear issue. But I think uh, a more honest assessment would be that it really was far more about the regional and geopolitical repercussions of striking a deal with Iran, any deal. Doesn't matter how many centrifuges there were to keep or uh, other details of the deal. The very idea of actually the Iranians and the United States coming to terms on a very critical issue was, was uh, and the re regional repercussions of that was the core reason why I think a lot of people oppose this deal. And um, inside of the Obama administration, I think it's also important to understand that while the nuclear issue clearly was the main motivator for these negotiations, this was not taking place disconnected from the geopolitical uh, realities, including the global geopolitical realities. This was not taking place in a vacuum. This was very much part of a larger vision of the administration, recognizing in their view, and I think there would be a lot of people that would agree, that ultimately the Middle East has lost a lot of its strategic significance. That the United States needs to focus eastwards because the real peer competitor to the United States is going to emerge out of Asia. It's not going to emerge out of uh, the Middle East. Iran may have uh, hegemonic aspirations, but its ability to actually challenge the United States on a global stage is extremely limited. Whereas there are players, obviously, in Asia that absolutely have that capacity. And the more the United States is excessively focused on strategically marginal issues in the Middle East, particularly at a time when the region's uh, uh, strategic significance has already reduced as a result of the U.S. being able to start exporting oil, etc. We're not as dependent on the oil from the region uh, any longer. Uh, it would be a strategic error to allow the United States to continue to be bogged down in not only the existing 
endless wars, but actually get bogged down in another uh, endless war in the region and miss the boat on the real challenge that the United States will be facing in the next two decades or so coming out of Asia. And the most critical risk that would get the United States back into the region in a way that it didn't want to and that it wouldn't be able to expel itself from would be if there was a military confrontation between the United States and Iran over the nuclear issue. Now, for some who are concerned about this, because despite of the loss of strategic significance of the region, still believe that the United States should have a strong military presence and a hegemonic position in the region, which as a parenthesis, I'm increasingly curious as to why one would want to be the hegemon of this region with all of these failing states and all of these tremendous challenges that this will bring about. If you're coming at it from that perspective, then the Iran nuclear deal is a problem, and your problem in the region are going to be the states that challenge Pax Americana. And you're going to turn a blind eye to the many sins committed by states in the region that happen to be American allies, but are creating some of the uh, biggest terrorist threats globally, and who are spreading it throughout the region and beyond, because at the end of the day, those states are yearning for and asking for American security guarantees and umbrellas. So your focus will be on Iran. Your focus will be on the idea that Iran is trying to be the hegemon. Uh, and you will turn a blind eye to what the Saudis and others are doing. Uh, as long as that is your priority, and the idea that the Middle East remains so important, that despite of all of its difficulties, the United States needs to have that strong of a military presence and be the hegemon and be responsible, responsible for everything that happens there. And that's a position in which I think uh, an understandable opposition to the nuclear deal um, uh, emanates from. If, however, there is a, a different perspective that at the end of the day, the region has changed. The United States has other priorities uh, in the globe. Um, and a deal that actually does prevent Iran from being able to become a nuclear weapon state, at least for 15 years and most likely beyond that, actually is a great way. And this is part of the reason why people like Mike Mullen in the military supported the deal. Because it enabled the United States to become less dependent on some of these problematic allies in the region, be able to have more maneuverability in the region, instead of being in a situation in which the United States was beholden to some of these allies who wants the United States to fight every war they want to fight for it. And this is what I think is fascinating, then, if we, under Trump, are going to return to that scenario that existed before the Iran deal. Because then it's not talking about breaking uh, the walls in Washington and changing things and uh, going a new route. It's actually going to go back to a situation in, the, in which the United States maneuverability in the region is significantly constrained, and it will be constrained by allies who actually are creating tremendous problems for the United States and the Western world globally. Thank you. So, Mike, you mentioned that it would be the P5 plus one that would bring Iran to the table. However, um, Europeans have made it pretty clear so far that they're not interested in renegotiating. Um, and it would have to take, they've basically said it would have to take a lot to get them to the table. Right. Well, well the good, I'm sorry, yeah, Go well, the good thing about, about what the Europeans are saying, they're also saying they're not willing to do business with Iran yet until the U.S. allows Iran access to the U.S. banking system. Uh, carries assurances that they would have access uh, weren't good enough for these European countries to actually invest. So that's a good thing. Uh, the one thing that, that we need to continue to focus on, and Zubin at Treasury has done a great job, 
is, is looking at those companies that have a percentage owned by the IRGC and ensuring that we don't do business with them. So those, those people saying that the, the Boeing deal offers American jobs, well, I would just go back to Star Wars and say, these are not the jobs you seek. These are not the jobs you want if it's fueled with this kind of, this kind of money. Um, but just to, just to go back to what Trita said, um, you know, Iran's interpretation of the Rondo is more important than our own. They believe that any additional sanctions is a, is a reason to walk away. And the Obama administration knew that. And the Obama administration put pressure on, on Democrats and Republicans not to, uh, not to support additional sanctions against Iran. But what I really heard you saying is that somehow Iran is an ally in the Middle East. And I, I, I can say without a doubt that Russia isn't in the Middle East to defeat ISIS. They are not a partner in the war against ISIS, and Iran certainly isn't. In fact, both Russia and Iran are actually fueling ISIS, al-Qaeda, and Jabhat al-Nusra recruitment. So I hear your pitch to pivot away from the Middle East, but pivoting away from the Middle East and leaving it to Iran to fix problems that they don't want to fix. Iran's happy with fractured states in the Middle East. The U.S., of course, is not very good at fixing things. Uh, so we're both, we both get credit for breaking the Middle East. One is a mistake, one's an intentional strategic goal. Uh, and that's, that's what we really need to focus on when we look at what Iran is actually doing in the Middle East. So if the Iran deal is so contentious and so many people say it's very flawed, and General Mattis called it an imperfect arms treaty, um, why shouldn't a Republican-backed uh, president, Republican president backed by a Republican Congress, Renegotiate. I think if Trump was willing to offer more sanctions relief, and in particular lifting the U.S. primary sanctions against Iran in exchange for greater concessions from Iran, whether it's uh, stronger arms control constraints on Iran's nuclear program or limits on Iran's behavior in the region, I think that would be a very powerful diplomatic position for the U.S. to take. I think it would be difficult for the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese to reject out of hand a U.S. proposal that seems reasonable, more for more. I, and, and perhaps that's where the Trump administration will end up. But I don't see much sentiment right now in the Trump administration for offering Iran more sanctions relief because there's deep distrust of Iran. We know that General Mattis has long and bitter personal experience dealing with the Iranians. We know General Flynn shares that same experience. So I don't see much uh, likelihood that the Trump administration will decide to make a generous offer to Iran. I think their natural instinct will be to pressure Iran with sanctions and threats. And I, my point is that if you pursue that approach, it it may have some value. It may deter Iran in some ways. But it's not likely to be healthy for the nuclear deal because I think the Iranians will uh, look for ways over time to uh, chip away at the nuclear agreement, whether it's resuming secret nuclear activities or uh, uh, you know, challenging the limits that are in the agreement. And over time, the deal is likely to unravel that way. Just one other point to say to what Michael said in this sort of debate about you know, Iran's role in the battle against Islamic State, it's very ambiguous, right? In some respects, uh, they're our tacit ally for now. I mean, certainly in Iraq, in the battle to recover Mosul, 
whether we like it or not, we and the Shia militia are fighting on the same side. That's not a strategic alliance, it's a tactical alliance. The President Trump's position on Syria is a very pro-Iranian position. It's support Assad, right? The Iran that's exactly what the Iranians are doing. But at the same time, I think it's also true that the Iranians seek to benefit from um, the uh, uh, sectarian tensions in the region. They try to build their influence by appealing to Shia Arab populations in Iraq and uh, you know and in Lebanon and so forth. So from that standpoint, I don't think they're deeply committed to the defeat of Islamic State. They see that in some ways as an advantage for them. So I think I mean as I see the Middle East, it's a very as usual, it's a very murky picture. And I am not sure we have any real friends or enemies in the region outside of Israel. I think uh, we have to sort of pursue U.S. interests and not, you know, uh, you know, to me there aren't any great countries there <laughs> uh, to be either friends or enemies. Thank you. If I could address both issues. Uh, first on the idea of renegotiating. I think the message has been quite clear from the other P5 plus one states that the idea that they would go back to these gruesome negotiations, uh, some of us in the audience were actually there during some of the rounds covering it uh, and seeing how uh, the diplomats were absolutely exhausted. Uh, seeing how Lavrov at one point absolutely infuriated comes down, asks for the hotel lobby to be more or less evacuated so he can go and order an entire bottle of vodka. I don't see them. I don't see them coming back to this. But if, if the idea actually is to renegotiate in order to be able to address some of the other issues, um, I don't see why there could not be a bilateral negotiation between the United States um, and uh, Iran. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to chips on the table that you would bring to a negotiation, it's the U.S. that would bring some of it at this point, as Gary correctly pointed out. The United States largely has its primary sanctions in place. The Europeans do not at any, uh, any longer. But it goes to the very core of the idea, how do you negotiate? The idea that you negotiate successfully uh, by asking for more and offering less may be entirely why none of those critics ever managed to negotiate successfully anything with Iran. It's very interesting to see them criticize the administration, whereas they themselves not only have no experience in negotiating with Iran, uh, but they've also shunned every opportunity to do so. If there is a serious proposition, then I think it would end up being something that is along the lines of a bilateral negotiation in which the U.S. does bring other things on the table, and so would the Iranians. And that would really test to see to what extent the Trump administration really is willing to go and be serious about this issue. Because I do also want to say that what Gary said is quite correct. After having made so many statements that this is a horrible deal, want to get rid of it, even though Trump did not say this as many times or with the same type of categorical rejection as other candidates did, but also to see a lot of folks that are uh, at least listened to by the Trump administration talking about how we can provoke the Iranians in order for them to be able to walk out of the deal so we still get a collapsed deal, but it won't be the fault of the United States. Having said these things publicly, the credibility problem the United States will have, going back to the P5 and say, we actually have a new proposal, we're going to ask them for more and give them less, um, it's just not going to work. On the idea of Iran as an ally, I'm glad you asked that, Michael, because that is not my point at all. 
It's not an issue of saying that the Iranians are an ally. I think, uh, again, there clearly are areas in which uh, there has been some tacit um, um, overlap of interest. Um, the senior Iraqi official was here just a couple of weeks ago and, and in a private setting at a U.S. think tank. He was praising the Iranians and even giving them credit for having saved Baghdad from falling uh, right after ISIS took Mosul and complaining that other allies of the United States of Iraq was so slow in providing military support, whereas the Iranians did it right away without asking any questions. Uh, now, you know more about Iraq, so you might be able to comment on that. But bottom line is, it's a complicated picture. The idea is not that Iran suddenly would become an American ally. That seems to be more of a nightmare of the Saudis and some folks in the GCC who think that the United States is about to shift uh, alliances. I think what, what Mike Mullen said is actually more correct. It's about making sure that the U.S. has the type of uh, maneuverability vis-a-vis -vis its own allies in order not to constantly be pressured by them, but also being able to be pushing back when it lies in the U.S. interest to do so. Take Syria, for example. Part of the reason why uh, uh, Putin may be a bit more successful in pressuring Russia's allies in order to force them to make a compromise down the road, whereas the United States probably would be in a less um, um, charitable situation, is because Putin straight up told Assad, I'm leaving Syria at one point, and Assad had to back down. Uh, and, and look what Putin is doing right now, putting pressure on the Iranians by playing with the Turks. Um, it's that maneuverability that Putin has that actually makes him effective in being able to um, uh, move towards a, a diplomatic solution. We don't know if that's going to happen yet or not, but at least he has that maneuverability. And I think uh, many folks in the U.S. government looked at that and would like to have that vis-a-vis -vis some of our friends, not to betray them, not to not be friends, but be able to actually get out of the deadlock that exists in the Middle East. You're clued into the you know, Iranian view. Is there actually an appetite in Iran within the Iranian government for bilateral bi bilateral negotiations? I mean, we don't know if that line of communication that Kerry and Zarif had is going to exist if and when Rex Tillerson is confirmed as Secretary of State. Right now, most conversations are wrapped up in the context of the Iranian elections happening in a couple of months from now. And the general sentiment and the line of attack against Rouhani is that the deal actually was not as successful the Iranians because they believe that they have not received the sanctions relief uh, that they were promised. And without a doubt, there has been problems with the sanctions relief process. The United States is amazing at imposing sanctions, but has far less experience in lifting sanctions. Um, and uh, so at this point, the idea that there would be any readiness prior to the elections, I think, is essentially at zero. Um, after the elections, again, I think it very much depends on if they also see this being something that the Trump administration is doing because it actually wants to build on it and, uh, and move forward, or if they see this as a trap. And I think their, their, um, their vision and perception of this will be very much clouded by the fact that they are so deeply suspicious of the United States, a suspicion that in their eyes have been vindicated by the statements by people like Trump and people around him. Um, but ultimately, um, I think there is also a certain fascination with Trump uh, in Iran within the folks that make decisions there, which is partly driven by the fact that they were so anti-Clinton, but also because of their belief, but Trump is a businessman at the end of the day. There's these business opportunities. He's going to be pragmatic. He's not going to be ideological. Uh, none of that is going to come to a test anytime soon, but after the elections, a scenario might occur. But the idea of going back to the P5 plus 1 setting, I find that extremely unlikely. So, 
Speaking of the elections coming up, what impact has the deal actually had on internal politics within Iran? Less so than I think the proponents of the deal inside of Iran would have liked. Uh, and again, that's because there is a perception that they have failed to live up to the promise that they had delivered the Iranian people. The idea that there would be far more sanctions relief and an economic pickup that would actually reach the population in a much more uh, significant way. It's one thing when oil companies come in and strike deals, but what the population wants, mindful of the fact that they have so many small businesses who love to do export-import, is for them to be able to use the SWIFT system actually benefit from this. And so far, they're not seeing enough of that. Um, there's also this other thing, which is a very mirror image of what you have in Washington. People in Washington have asked, and I think it's a legitimate question, have we seen a change in Iranian conduct as a result, in the region, as a result of the deal? Uh, which is interesting because there was nothing in the deal that promised that that would happen, certainly not in the short run. The Iranians are asking exactly the same question. Have we seen a change in American conduct? in the region as a result of the deal. Is the United States no longer automatically on the side of Saudi Arabia when the Saudis want to go and bomb uh, Yemen into a rubble? Uh, are the Amer Americans changing their position on other issues? And I think in both cases, those are exaggerated expectations. If that were to happen, it would happen over the course of the long term as a result of additional diplomacy between the United States and Iran, not as a result of just a nuclear deal. Well, I'd like to answer both of your hypotheticals. Yes, Iran is more emboldened post-Iran deal. Yes, Iran is doing more nefarious activity in the Middle East and North Africa. And yes, the U.S. under the Obama administration has disengaged, has stepped back, has allowed things to happen. Again, going back to what Leon Panetta said, if we did things against Iran's strategic interests in Syria, the Obama administration thought Iran would walk away. If we did things in Iraq, they thought Iran would walk away. Iran is in a much stronger position post, I want to say Iran, I'm not talking about the Iranian people, the Iranian economy. I'm talking about the Quds Force, or the IRGC, what Iran's been able to do. Uh, Iran, you know, Assad celebrated a paycheck, Hezbollah celebrated a paycheck when that $150 billion was released, when the $1.87 billion went back to, back to Iran. But what's interesting about Trump is, you know, Trump was a Democrat two years ago. Now he's a Republican. Schumer, had, Schumer was one of the most, one of the quietest and loudest opponents of the Iran deal. He opposed it, but he assured uh, the White House that he wouldn't get other Democrats to oppose it because he would lose his position as minority leader. He's now a minority leader, absent the threat of not being minority leader. Uh, this is a place where Trump and Schumer can actually work together to, to enforce it, to make sure it works again. If General Mattis and Allen are right, and General McChrystal as well, that the Iran deal is good if we enforce it, and it keeps Iran from, from obtaining a nuclear weapon, then this administration is going to tighten that pressure on Iran to do that, and at the same time, be able to address uh, its continued export of terrorism, continued support to these groups that are destabilizing the Middle East. And when we talk about the Saudis, this is one thing that I always say. We have this more equivalency argument, the Iranians and the Saudis. Who has more influence in Baghdad, Saudi Arabia or Iran? Iran. Who has more influence in Beirut? Who has more influence in Damascus? Who has more influence in Sana'a? It's not the Saudis. It's the Iranians. And it's, it's the Iranian, it's the RGC, it's the Quds Force. We, we spoke about this earlier. We talked about Saudi Arabia. Yes, there are Saudis that join al-Qaeda and ISIS. And 
God forbid Saudi ever develop its own IRGC or its own Quds Force, because then it could actually get these disparate Sunni jihadist groups that Sunni or that Saudi adventurers support from from uh, working towards a common strategic goal. The IRGC is capable of doing that. And again, one of the arguments made during the Iran deal was it's either this or war. Well, no, this is A, war is Z. There's all the steps in between. There's a lot of ways to make the Iran deal a better deal, and simply enforcing it and increasing sanctions on Iran's export of terrorism is a way to get Iran. And if they do walk away from the deal, it'll be them walking away, and the P5 plus 1 can put pressure on them. The, the thing about this this deal is Iran's interpretation is more important than our own. First off, Iran never signed the deal. And Iran said any additional sanctions put on Iran, regardless of whether or not they're related to the nuclear field, would be reason for Iran to walk away. The Obama administration believed this. The Trump administration will not be constrained by these types of threats. Can I just comment? I, you know, I think the question here is how much capacity are, how much are the Iranians willing to suffer additional sanctions and how will they respond to it? I think for now the government of Rouhani is committed to keeping this agreement in place. So I don't think they're going to walk from the agreement for any sanctions. It will depend on the magnitude of the sanctions. So I think there are things we can do to respond to Iran's non-nuclear activities, whether it's sanctioning individuals or entities involved in terrorism, which won't automatically spell the end of the deal. Uh, especially because we have said to the Iranians and we've said to the other P5 plus one, we're only lifting the nuclear sanctions and we will feel free to sanction Iran for other activities. We've kept those sanctions in place. We've made no commitments not to impose new sanctions for those other activities as long as they don't take away the benefits that the Iranians got under the nuclear deal. So I do think there's some room there for the Trump administration to impose additional sanctions. The point I'm making is that there's also a potential risk that the Iranians, how do they retaliate, right? They have to look at their range of ability to, um, you know, to respond to what we take as hostile action. And whether it's in the field, whether it's, you know, targeting American uh, service people in Iraq, or whether it's in terms of the nuclear deal, in terms of, you know, uh, perhaps limiting inspections, harassing inspectors, uh, challenging the limits in the nuclear deal, they're likely to do something. And you can set up a vicious cycle that leads the deal to unravel over time. That's why I say I don't think, I think it's unlikely that the deal is just going to be killed in one single uh, action by the U.S. or Iran. I think a much more plausible scenario is that it begins to deteriorate and you get into this kind of death spiral uh, and that's how it ends up collapsing. Sure. Um, thank you, Mike. I, I think you, you raise very interesting point. We, we obviously disagree, but I think where I think the conversation is missing each other is I think, again, your focus is very much centered on Iran and the region. And as a result, you ask the question, you know, does Saudi have more influence in Beirut or does the Iranians, you know, in, in Baghdad, etc. I think a 
more important question is, those who are conducting terrorist attacks against New York, San Bernardino, Paris, Nice, are they inspired by Saudi Wahhabism or are they inspired by Tehran and the Quds Force? Those are things that are hitting not only the United States at its home, but it's actually a global problem. This idea of a, a sectarian war, it clearly is a dimension of that, but I think a, a point that has been missed is that the real change within the world of Islam, if we can speak of that, is not that the number of Shiites as a result of the Islamic Republic has increased. The real change that has happened is that so many more Sunnis have become Salafists. And that's driven not by Iran, that's driven by Saudi money, by Qatari money. And a conversation in Washington, D.C., about the threat of terrorism, about the instability in the region, about these things that does not even bring that in, I think is highly problematic. I'm hoping to see that change. I'm hoping that perhaps someone who defines themselves as changing the existing rules in the region would take that opportunity to do so. That also then goes back to the question of um, the argument that um, the Iran deal constrained the United States and Syria. Again, I think it's a very Iran-centric analysis. If you take a look at how this administration, the previous administration has operated, clearly they were not inclined to be involved in that conflict because they didn't see any exit and they did not believe that it was strategically central. They even called it strategically marginal. Whether that is the reason why they didn't go in or whether it is because the Iran deal, I have seen no credible evidence to point that the Iran deal is the reason why they didn't do it. I've seen plenty of reasons, uh, evidence as to why this larger global perspective that they had is the reason why they didn't go into Syria. And I'm not saying that was right or wrong. I'm just saying um, perhaps we're giving the Iran deal a little bit too much credit for whatever constraints the administration either It was the most important thing in the second term of the administration. It was their most important foreign policy oh, issue. True, but the if they didn't issue. have the Iran negotiations, right. are you saying that Obama would have walked into Syria? No, I'm not saying that. But well, what I am saying that. is you can be against... Gary. Let me just... Well, I, I, on this, just to go ahead, on. Mike. The, what I am saying is that you can be both against the IRGC and against ISIS. I'm, I'm against al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the RGC. I haven't heard you state you are as well. Well, what I'm saying it can be is... Against, it is not an either-or for me. I'm against... I think it might be because I'm not seeing any uh, criticism against uh, what the Saudis are doing. And a this is about the Iran, the Iran deal. No, hold on. Iran's actually you're you're the one who wanted to talk about the regional repercussions of the deal. Well, that means right. that the entire region is involved. Uh, is the IRGC doing really bad things in the region? Are they contributing to instability? I don't know. I'm asking you. I think, I think they, they are. are. I think absolutely. Are they? Absolutely. Are they? Okay. Uh, but the issue is that there are sanctions against the IRGC. There are measures against the IRGC. That are being enforced. Uh, some of them are. Whereas, when it comes to what the Saudis are doing and what others are doing, there is a deafening silence. This does not mean that by taking that on and addressing these issues, you have to go hug the IRGC. No one has said that. No one has suggested that. You don't even have to make a deal with the Iranians. But any analysis of the region that constantly turns a blind eye to that is going to lead the United States to the same dead end that it has been so far. Well, I think the IRGC could be very helpful in helping us screen, screen Sunni military Jamal's coming from these regions. I would like for the IRGC to actually be a, 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 uh, an asset in the war against ISIS instead of a, a, a force that's actually looking to push more Sunnis into the refugee population, exit Sunni populations from, from, from traditional Sunni enclaves in Syria and Iraq. And, and none of that is happening because of the Iran deal. It's all 
been emboldened since the Iran deal because the Iran deal constrained the Obama administration. There's no doubt. Uh, Post-Iran deal, Iran is stronger. Assad was weak before the Iran deal. Assad's stronger now. We didn't even see Putin coming into Syria. Putin's a guarantor of the Iran deal and, and, and Putin's selling illegal weapon systems to Iran that are not supposed to be sold under the Iran deal for five years. So there are a lot of things that constrain the Obama administration because of the Iran deal. I mean, you make it sound as if the region was just amazing paradise, and then the Iran deal happened, and then everything just went wrong. This region has been in uh, a deteriorating security situation. Since 1979. No, particularly since 2003. Particularly since 2003, when the United States went into Iraq and destroyed that country, and as a result, we have the spreading instability. Additional mistakes have been taking place. Additional countries have made it worse, without a doubt. But the most destabilizing event of the last two decades, three decades, had been the invasion of Iraq. So what you have had since then, as a result of the policy of the United States, in which it destroyed the Taliban, destroyed Saddam Hussein, that certainly emboldened the Iranians. Um, and as a result, that trajectory has continued. That trajectory did not change in any specific direction as a result of the Iran deal. What it did do, and I think this is a legitimate argument that could be presented, and I'm actually baffled as to why folks who were on the opposing side of the deal didn't talk more about this when they were trying to criticize the deal, is that with the agreement with Iran and the P5 plus one, that's the first time the United States struck a deal with Iran since 1979. That in and of itself is a recognition by the administration that Iran is a player in the region, is a major player in the region, and the United States needs to deal with it. Once you've made that recognition, the ability to go back to regime change policies or an all-out containment is much, much more difficult, which is precisely why the Israelis and the Saudis oppose it, because that's what they wanted. They wanted the United States to restore the order that existed pre-2003. Uh, and as a result, they were opposed, but those arguments were rarely made. But the issue there is, it's not that the Iran deal actually made that situation. The Iran deal was a recognition that the balance of power in the region already had changed and that the United States needed to deal with that. That was an overcorrection of the Bush policy. Gary, could you give us some insight into how the Iran deal actually did play into Syria at that time? So I left in early 2013, and uh, that was even before we were in serious negotiations with the Iranians. So from my perspective, President Obama's reluctance to get dragged into the Syrian civil war had nothing to do with Iran at least at that point. In other words, he did not, for his own reasons, not wanting to get into another conflict in the region. And of course, it's, I think, now public that he, uh, that he turned down the uh, uh, you know, recommendations from his national security team to begin arming and training the Syrian opposition long before there was any nuclear negotiation with Iran. So I don't, I don't see the two as deeply connected. I, 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 I do believe it is true that during the nuclear negotiations, the Iranians may very well have indicated or threatened that if the U.S. intervened in Syria, it would damage the nuclear negotiations. That's quite possible. But I don't know that it was a very important factor in President Obama's mind. I think he was principally motivated by a desire to avoid getting dragged into another Middle East conflict. Do any of you have any closing remarks before we open it up for questions? I'd just like to say one thing real quick, and I'll get to In 2009, I served in Iraq. And there were IRGC operatives responsible for kidnapping and executing Americans. They were directly tied to Case and Laith Kazali. Yep. And 
under a Bush administration, General Petraeus, President Bush, even, even Odierno said there's no way these three will ever get released. Doc Duke, Leith Kazali, and Case Kazali. Doc Duke of Lebanese Hezbollah. In 2009, I sat in, in a meeting with, with General Odierno, and it was during the elections when Alawi was running for, uh, his party was running to, mm -hmm. to get the premiership and actually be able to form Congress, where General Odierno said, I've been told to take my hands off. Take my hands off. At that time, the sofa fell apart. The IRGC stepped up its pressure on Iraqi politicians to make sure the U.S. wasn't going to be a main player in Iraq. More importantly, Iran got every operative released from U.S. detention in the span of six weeks. Uh, we had a no vote. We lost that no vote. Every one of these individuals was released. So I would argue that rapprochement has been going back to 2009. And, you know, Jay Solomon uh, in his book uh, mentioned the 2007 National Intelligence Estimate on Iran's nuclear program. Uh, and it basically said a senior Iranian official said that the nuclear program was being cut, was being underfunded. He stayed on long enough for American intelligence officers to intercept this and to translate it. Uh, I would go back to an L.A. Times article in 2005 where the L.A. Times told the Iraqi government that the Americans are listening, and that's because the State Department had issued every Iraqi politician a phone that preceded with a 914 area code. Every Iraqi politician, every Iraqi sectarian in the intelligence security apparatus knew that if they spoke long enough on that phone, they could convince the U.S. government that they were non-sectarian and they were not targeting Sunnis. I would argue, and I use this argument on Capitol Hill on 2015, that if you're listening to a senior Iranian official on a cell phone tell you that there is no nuclear program in Iran, and he goes on for 15 minutes, that you are being messaged, that you are being lied to. One of the biggest problems with the National Security Agency is they believe that if they intercept a phone call, whatever you're saying is the truth. All of us lie every day on the phone. Honey, I'll be home a little late tonight. I have work. Um, things like that, excuse me. <laughs> but I would just say, I would just say that, that the intelligence community may not be right on a lot of these things. I'm happy to be wrong, Trita. If all this is wrong, don't worry great, about it. I'm happy to be wrong. But, but anyway, I'm not. I'd rather be a skeptic at this point. So I see a couple of Iran talks, um, veterans. I'll start with Gorbis Levin. Is this on? Yeah. Hi, I'm Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. Very interesting debate. Um, Mr. Pugin, I have a question for you. First, let me say I understand your bitterness and anger at Iran for what happened in Iraq. But I think your anger should be directed toward George W. Bush, who put you in that position, rather than necessarily... Um, Bob Woodward declassified two of my papers that criticized the Bush administration and the war sure. with them. Um, but so the, I'm on yeah. record criticizing... So, I mean, the animosity toward Iran... Totally understood. But you didn't know who Mohammad Reza Naki was in the <laughs> debate on the NPR affiliate in L.A., the guy that put down the 2009 Green Revolution. And that surprised me as an Iran expert from okay. the Atlantic Council that you didn't know who the besieged commander was. Uh, anyway, anyway, I have a question for you, if that's okay. Yeah. So I understand your, your, your animosity. It's perfectly understandable. And the IRGC does a lot of vile and disgusting things, including putting a lot of my friends in prison who are still there as we speak. Right. However, what I'm trying to understand is how destroying the Iran deal, whether it's a death spiral or it's a head-on or whatever, how that helps a U.S. interests in the region and how it um, will somehow slow Iran's uh, 
rise to prominence in the region. Given that Iran is already entrenched in so many right. countries and so on, why would breaking up this deal necessarily make things better? Do we want an Iran that is then marching smartly toward nuclear weapons? Is that going to make them less powerful in the region? Thanks. See, the breakout time before the Iran deal was three months. The breakout time now is six months with the Iran deal in place. Six months, a year sounds better. Um, <laughs> if, if Iran doesn't cheat, they get a nuclear weapon in 10 years. When has Iran never cheated? I'm, I'm sorry, but Iran violated UN Security Council resolutions by putting your friends in prison. In the, at the beginning of the agreement, it says Iran will never develop nuclear weapons. Oh, I know, weapons. I know. We will never, ever, ever, ever. Yeah. But, develop. I mean, if you kill the deal, then for sure you're, you're giving them an incentive to develop. So what's, my point is this. What's the, what's the advantage to the United States of destroying this agreement now? See, my argument is simply enforce the deal in the secret side deals and deny Iran access to the U.S. banking system. I think I said that at the beginning of this. I never said, I know, continue that. Kerry promised access. So you're supporting the deal? <laughs> I support enforcement of the deal, and I'm against all the non-nuclear concessions. Uh, and it's that, it's that simple. So in secret side deals, Barbara, punish, punish Iran, Oh, that we would that we would protect the Iran nuclear program from cyber attack? Why don't you ask? Ask some people on the Hill. No, they haven't published everything. They have not. Okay, the simple thing. So basically, killing the Iran deal, if anybody kills Iran, deal, it would be Iran. So if Iran tried to walk away, P5 plus 1 would keep them at the table because the Obama administration was constrained by these threats of walking away. Let's call their bluff. Let's put sanctions on Hezbollah. Let's put sanctions on the besiege that imprison your friends for speaking out. Let's enforce them. Let's increase them. Let's enforce them. And let's see what Iran does, Barbara. I'm, I'm trying to help your friends get out of prison. You know? You know, I am. Could I just, yeah. just say one thing? I think, you know, we have to recognize a lot of this discussion is about sanctions. I think we have to recognize that sanctions against Iranian individuals and entities that we don't like are symbolic. They have no substantive meaning. The sanctions that worked were sanctions against the Iranian economy. So it was only when we were able to constrain their exports of oil and limit their access to the international financial system that we had real leverage. Now, I have no objection to uh, you know, sanctioning thugs in Iran, and, but we should recognize that these are not serious actions. That if you're going to take serious actions against these people, it has to be in the regional theater. So you can't do it through economic means. And I uh, personally, I didn't you know, go through the same experience Mike did, but I, I was appalled that both the Bush and the Obama administration never really retaliated for what the, Iranian, for what the IRGC was doing through their uh, Shia militias in Iraq to U.S. servicemen. I, I, I think this was a terrible message that we sent to the Iranians that if they work through proxies to uh, kill and injure American uh, soldiers, we would not retaliate in a, in, in a very strong way. And I blame both Bush and Obama administration for, for failing to respond strongly enough. Do you want to respond? Um, I, I just want to clarify one thing. Um, some of these things I don't think are that much up for debate, uh, and one that being that the Iranians are now actually having less than 300 kilos of LEU. Um, the inspections and verification system that is in place now is 
uh, unprecedented. And the additional protocol in which that comes with actually is something that will continue beyond these 10 to 15 years. Granted that by year eight of the deal, uh, the United States then actually lifts the sanctions instead of just issuing waivers. Under those circumstances, uh, yes, the Iranians will be able to later on expand their nuclear uh, the centrifuge program. Uh, I don't know uh, to what extent it will be able to amass uh, LEU, etc. But the inspections are still there in place. The eyes and ears of the IEA is within the program, which is something that we actually have not had to that extent at all uh, throughout this period prior to the deal. And I, I think we should be careful about belittling those things and, and making arguments that, you know, on year 10 automatically there's a nuclear weapon that pops out of Iran, because that simply is not the case. Gentlemen in the front. Thank you very much. Alan Goldsmith, uh, United Against Nuclear Iran. And full disclosure, we are uh, privileged and honored to have Dr. Seymour as our former president on our advisory board and Professor Pregent as a member of our Veterans Advisory Council. Two questions. Professor Pregent, uh, what do you think the Trump administration should tell a foreign U.S. and foreign companies that are considering or in the process of resuming business in Iran? And Dr. Seymour, um, I think... If I were to summarize the, the nuclear deal's uh, core provisions, it would be that uh, you can have nuclear weapons Tuesday as, as long as you don't have nuclear weapons today. So what do you think uh, can be done to correct the damage this could do to the global non nuclear nonproliferation system, to the gold standard, and so forth? Thank you. So I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, I think President Trump needs to be convinced more that these deals with these Iranian companies, American companies going to Iran is not a good thing. We should not be making Iran's air fleet more capable of exporting terrorism. That's from a former intelligence officer perspective, knowing that the RGC now is able to commandeer aircraft, to put uh, put things in the cargo bays that we wouldn't be able to do in this country, to be able to use legitimate civilian commercial airliners to supply Hezbollah and these other groups. So I think the argument needs to be made to President Trump that these are not the things we should focus on initially. Uh, I'm concerned about the bigger, better deal. One of the biggest criti criticisms I had initially of, of Trump saying the Iran deal is bad it was because he thought it was a bad deal because they weren't buying from us. It was a bad deal because they weren't. And I don't want him to think that the Boeing deal is a good deal because you know, I want Iran to moderate. Remember, when I, when, we talk about it, when I talk about Iran, I'm talking about the Besiege, the MOIS, and the IRGC. I'm not talking about the Iranian people. I'm talking about these three organizations that do a lot of damage in the Middle East. And they're spreading in Eastern Europe. They're in South and Central America. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. And anything that facilitates Iran's export of terrorism and a U.S. company or business is involved is, is a bad thing. And I know that advisors in the National Security Council are, are making those arguments better than I could. So the Iran deal is about limiting Iran's capacity to produce nuclear weapons. I mean, in, on paper, under their international commitments and under the Iran deal, they're not allowed to have nuclear weapons. Not that I necessarily trust anything, any commitments they make. But the deal is about limiting physical capacity to produce fissile material. And the deal does that very effectively for 15 years. I think it's very problematic after 15 years, the physical limits on Iran's ability to produce enriched uranium um, are lifted. 
because I don't, of course, I have 15 years. I can't, I, I can't predict what Iran will be like in 15 years. But that's the fundamental gamble of the deal, that in 15 years you'll have emerging Iran, a government that's less interested in acquiring nuclear weapons. Whether that's true or not, A, I don't think we can predict it. B, as I said earlier, I don't think the deal will last 15 years anyway. So I don't think the proposition will ever be tested. But in terms of kicking the can down the road, which is often the best you can do in international diplomacy, the deal is working. But, yeah, but you see, it doesn't say to Iran you can have nuclear weapons in 15 years. It says to Iran, in 15 years you can have an unconstrained civil enrichment program. And the vast majority of countries think that's already in the NPT. So it's not, it doesn't, I mean, what it, the, from an, well, I don't know what the gold standard is, but I'm just saying that the, the, the nuclear deal limits what most countries think are already their rights under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And, you know, additional inspections and so forth. Um, I know the question wasn't for me, but if you don't mind, I'm going to just uh, add two, I think, important <coughs> comments here. Um, it is important to actually have a clear definition of what would be a violation of the deal and what wouldn't. Uh, as you mentioned, putting back certain people on lists, etc., uh, the Iranians will object, but uh, they will not have a majority with them within the P5 plus 1 in the interpretation that that is a violation. Stopping the Boeing deal, encouraging companies not to go and do business in Iran, actually is an explicit violation of the deal. Imposing new sanctions that target what is called in the agreement uh, legitimate trade is a violation of the deal. Imposing targeted sanctions that may address individuals, uh, etc., uh, but that does not have that broad implication of targeting legitimate trade would not be a violation. And I think it's important to understand that, particularly for an administration who wants to go in and who says that uh, Iran will be the ones violating or walking away from the deal. And, you know, has to have a very clear understanding of what actually the rules are. And I think this is also a problem on Capitol Hill in which the interpretation that, look, as long as the sanctions are not nuclear-related, they're okay. That's not what the agreement says. Now, we can agree or disagree as to whether that's good or bad, but as your former boss, General Mattis, said, this is the deal we have, and America honors its words. Secondly, um, uh, Michael, I, I don't want to in any way question you more, as I do believe that you do not have any animosity towards the Iranian people. But I do want to say that if this is not driven by any animosity towards the Iranian people, I think at a minimum we should listen to what they say as well. And this deal was extremely warmly welcomed in Iran by the ordinary people because they actually saw it as something that prevented war and that in the long run would actually increase their ability to... And now they're complaining that it's not benefiting the economy. Sorry? And now they're complaining that it's not benefiting... Now they're complaining, the exactly, because the reason why they wanted the economy to be benefited is, A, because they're not going to be able to move Iran in the, uh, in the positive direction if they're constantly suffering from economic misery as a result of sanctions and Iranian government's own mismanagement, but also because of the fact that at the end of the day, if you want to be able to move things in the right direction, you do need to have a stronger civil society. You need to have a more open uh, uh, society, which hardline elements in the Iranian government constantly are trying to constrain. And the conflict with the United States was an extreme help 
to those hardliners trying to constrain the Iranian society as much as possible. And that's a very critical reason as to why you saw people go out on the streets dancing and celebrating not only the final deal, but also uh, uh, when the uh, political framework agreement was uh, agreed upon in early May. So if there is a message saying, look, we're not against the Iranian people, we wish them the best, at a minimum one has to be able to address the fact that they overwhelmingly want this deal and not fall into the uh, uh, trap that I think Bibi Netanyahu said for himself the other day when he uh, videotaped the message to the Iranian people completely misreading what they want. Just criticizing the regime is not enough to be able for him to uh, build up his credibility with the population because they overwhelmingly support the deal and they rightfully see him as one of the biggest opponents of the deal. So if you don't want to use the deal as a means to stop Iran's destabilizing efforts in the region, then how do you suggest doing that? Sorry, I don't understand the question. If you don't want to use the deal as a way to... Stop Iran's destabilizing uh, movements and efforts in the region, then how do you suggest doing that? Because right now that's the only avenue to do that. No, I don't think it is an avenue to do that. If you want to go address the other issues in which the United States legitimately has problems with Iran, then you need to go back and negotiate more and pursue diplomacy because so far that is the only thing that actually has worked. And that means talking to them about these different issues. There's no guarantee for success. In many different areas, it's going to be tremendously pro uh, problematic. And in some areas, the likelihood is you really don't have much of a chance of being able to get a change. But you also have to understand, I think, that much of what is happening is not just because there's some bad guys in Iran wanting to do ill stuff. Do you have a regional context that is extremely uh, unstable right now? And to expect that suddenly, you know, by talking to them or imposing some more sanctions on them, everything else that they will completely seize their behavior that is problematic is, is quite naive. There has to be a much more broad-based engagement. If the United States has the capacity, which I doubt, but if it had the capacity, it should really do something to be able to bridge the differences between Iran and Saudi Arabia because their rivalry right now is one of the main fires that are burning the region right now. You clearly see that in Syria. Unfortunately, I don't think the U.S. right now has that capacity Capacity. But to believe that that fire will be put out all by itself, um, I think uh, is quite unlikely. So I, I think this is an important point to talk about because there are, I, I think there are real limits to our ability to push back or limit Iranian influence in the region. We have a very weak hand in Syria and Iraq. And I don't think, uh, unless the U.S. is prepared to intervene a, uh, with military force, and I see very little inclination on the part of the Trump administration to do that, I don't think we can easily reverse that. Uh, I don't think we have an interest or capacity to reconcile the Saudis and the Iranians, and that's a blood feud that goes so deep I wouldn't even want to try to get into the middle of that. The one thing we can do in the region, and which we can do better than anybody else, and which really constrains Iran, is to maintain our military forces in the Persian Gulf. And it seems to me that that's something that's in our interest to do. It's in the interest of our allies in Europe and in Asia to do. And that really limits Iran's capacity to dominate, uh, you know, their immediate um, region. But I don't think we can, I don't think we can, we can reverse the situation in Syria or Iraq. In Syria, Assad has won, or at least he's won enough territory so he can hang on to the principal cities and the rest of the country will be ungoverned or, you know, governed by uh, smaller ethnic groups like the Kurds. And in Iraq, I mean, let's face it, when the battle of, battle of Mosul is over, 
I think Prime Minister al-Abadi will come under tremendous pressure to reduce the U.S. military presence from the Iranians and from their local allies, and I don't think he's going to be able to resist. So, you know, without casting fault, and I think there's some of it's our fault and some of it's other people's fault, I think the fact of the matter is the Iranian dominant position in Damascus and Baghdad is not going to be changed. <clears throat> Just to follow up on that real quick, in Iraq, and you're right, we have to weigh Iran's response if we do anything to, to end the Iran or walk away from it. And in Iraq, U.S. forces are outnumbered 20 to 1 by militias by the same militias that were led by Case Ghazali, uh, al-Muhendis from Kitab Hezbollah, the ones that Qasem Soleimani directs. And they've already hinted, we cannot wait to attack Americans. Mm -hmm. We get to kill ISIS and Americans. Abu Israel said that. Um, I cannot wait for that day. So, yes, we have to weigh what we do. So if we take a heavy-handed approach with our fifth fleet based on Iranian aggression, we are putting our soldiers at risk in Iraq because the very militias they are training wear the uniform of the Iraqi army. Uh, the very militias that are part of the Hashr al-Shabi are directed by Qasem Soleimani. So we have to weigh all those things. Uh, but we shouldn't have put ourselves in that position to begin with. Uh, that's one of the biggest problems. Anyway. I agree with that. The woman in the red. My question is for Dr. Simor. Um, you said that the deal, you see the deal dying over time. Um, if that does happen, if sa snapback sanctions are placed on Iran, do you see America putting pressure on Europe or European business interests in the country to pull out? I mean, right now, I think the deal states that retroact, you know, um, sanctions would not affect, retroactively affect business interests in Iran. Thank you. It's a very good question, and it's hard to answer because it depends on who is held mostly responsible for killing the deal. I mean, there'll be the usual blame game where we will try to maneuver to convince the Europeans that it was Iran's fault. The Iranians will try to maneuver to convince the Europeans that it was our fault. And so there'll be a competition for... Uh, you know, basically who to blame for the collapse of the deal. Now we, I mean, in that competition we have an advantage, obviously, because our economic and political relationship with Europe is far more important than the European relationship is with Iran. But, you know, from a diplomatic standpoint, it will depend on the larger context of U.S.-European relations. Now, so, for example, Trump, the way Trump managed, President Trump manages his relations with Russia and NATO, all of that will be a factor, missile defense and so forth, will be a factor in the willingness of the Europeans to return to an economic sanctions approach against Iran, and it'll depend on how the Iranians respond if the deal collapses. So far, in my view, Iran has been very cautious in their nuclear program. If they had wanted to, they could be much closer to having nuclear weapons. I mean, from a technical standpoint, they've been very careful to move slowly because they didn't want to precipitate uh, economic sanctions or war. They don't want to have a war with the United States. So it'll depend on how they respond. It'll depend upon the broader political context. And it's, so it's very hard for me to answer your question. But I guess the main point I'm trying to make is I don't think the saga of the Iran nuclear weapons program is over. 
I mean, this is a this is an issue which I've been personally involved in since the Reagan administration. I think that the current government in Iran is deeply committed to having a nuclear weapons capability or nuclear weapons. And until that government changes, which unfortunately doesn't seem to be likely uh, in the near term, I think it'll be a problem we'll continue to have to try to manage. I'm Faye Mokhtadur. I'm a member of many organizations in here. My question is to you, Mike. Uh, I do understand your grudges against IRG. Uh, <laughs> grudges? It's every... No, I, I understand. <laughs> it's what an intelligence officer is going to take. It's legitimate. But you, you I'm bad because the cowboys lost. Okay, okay go ahead. You have to recognize <laughs> that uh, more than three decades of uh, sanctions against Iran has actually empowered these people. And don't you think that it's time for us to change the course and bring Iranian to more international uh, stage so we can monitor what's going on. The same group of people that you are, you know, wondering about where the money goes, these sanctions had actually empowered black market, it has uh, empowered people to do things illegally. So I think it's time for United States. 37 years of sanctions didn't change the regime, didn't do anything. So let's change the course. And I want your opinion on that. Thank you. I believe you should negotiate from a position of strength and so do the Iranians. The Iranians negotiated from a position of strength. We did not. That's the problem with the Iran deal. Again, as director of Veterans Against the Iran Deal, I focused on the non-nuclear concessions, the, the delisting of individuals and entities that supported terrorism. And we all know, nobody in here believed that the money was going to go back to the Iranian people. That it was going to be, you know, the IRGC saw an increase in its budget. Uh, the defense forces have an increase in their budgets. No, no, I, I understand a country's ability to defend itself. I'm just saying that sanctions relief should come at, at Iran's expense. Um, support for terrorist groups, they should walk away from that. In 2003, two high-ranking Iranian officials approached the Bush administration and said, we're willing to stop our nuclear program and stop support to Hezbollah and Hamas. The Bush administration said, we don't believe this. We think it's just a ruse. The Bush administration also believed that if you remove Saddam Hussein, it would empower the, the Shia Iraqis and they would be a counter to Iran. That didn't happen. It made Iran stronger. So mistakes have been made along the way. But we're looking for concessions. This is a, it's good to have a, a, a president who wants to make a better deal, who will bargain from a position of strength, and I hope he does. But if that becomes, uh, the U.S. selling weapons to Iran or the U.S. securing oil deals with Iran, then I'll be one of the loudest critics, and not because the Dallas Cowboys lost, but because we understand who the IRGC is. They lost the Iran deal, remember. Yes, yes. <laughs> In 2009, the Green Revolution, those are the Iranians we should have supported, and traditionally we would have, but we didn't because it would have derailed the secret talks that are already in place, the rapprochement with Iran that was already in place, and I know that because I was an intelligence officer, not a bitter, angry man, an intelligence officer. And um, 
we just look at the nefarious activities of governments. I'm also an anti-Russia guy. You know, I'm also an anti, you know, countries that go against U.S. interests. I'm sorry, but I kind of default on the U.S. position. And uh, I would say that if we are going to, li to lift sanctions, it needs to be because Iran gave something up. Iran didn't give up anything in the Iran deal, okay? There's still going to be a nuclear power in 15 years. We don't know. The ballistic missile program is an indicator. It's an indicator of Iran's intentions. You don't develop this capability unless you either want to intimidate or you want to send a signal to Sunni regional allies in the region that you can reach them, or a message to Israel. These types of things, you know, when we call Rouhani a moderate just because he's not Ahmadinejad, you know, those are things that we, we, need, to, we need to think about. We need to think about who, who the regime is. I would love it if the regime had an Obama moment and elected the first, you know, president that wasn't part of the regime and didn't subscribe to the 1979 re revolutionary ideology. But that's not the case yet. That's what we want. That's what, what, what does the position of strength look like? We're going to increase sanctions on Iran's export of terrorism. Yeah, they're symbolic. I get it. But it means something to Iran. Mm -hmm. Because it, to the Iran, they view it as a violation of the, of the Iran deal. Any additional sanctions, any enforcement of existing sanctions, I, I would do that. I would increase our military presence. Uh, in the region, I would actually hold Baghdad in violation of U.S. law by giving American money and arms to Iranian proxies like Qatab Hezbollah, like Assab Aho Haq. They are the ones driving around in M1 Abrams in Iraq. They're the ones that have our night vision equipment. They're the ones that have our best weapons. They're the ones that take photos of American aircraft bringing supplies to the Iraqi government and say this C-130 was supposed to resupply ISIS. I would, I would, right now, I would change the dynamic in Iraq where we have 5,000 to 7,000 American soldiers. I would move them to the KRG where they're more protected, hold Baghdad in violation of current existing laws, and tell Baghdad, we're going to hug you a little tighter than Tehran is. We're going to put our $3 trillion economy against Iran's, and we're going to change the dynamic in the Middle East. We don't have the stomach for that. That's not going to happen. I get it, but it shouldn't be an overcorrection of what Bush did by simply saying, let's do the opposite. Let's have a George Costanza moment and be the opposite. <laughs> we we, we got we to gotta do something between A and Z, and it's either this or that, and I argue that there's a bunch of letters in between where we have options. Can I make some comments? Um, first, just a piece of friendly advice, Michael. The more you say you're not angry and bitter, the more you convince people you're angry. I, think, I thought that was just for alcoholics. <laughs> just, just drop it. Just drop it. Um, <laughs> But, but a couple of points. Um, in 2003, as you correctly pointed out, uh, there was an offer on the table. And when the United States was strong, it felt that it was so strong that it didn't need to negotiate. That's the trick. You know, if you actually want to negotiate, you actually actively look for the right moment. There wasn't a desire to negotiate. There was a feeling of hubris. And as a result, it was a golden opportunity that was lost. As a, and I know you agree on that. But I wanted to say a couple of things because I think it's important to actually understand some of the calculations that the Iranians have based on their own perception of their reality. And we don't have to agree or disagree with it, but I think it's important to understand these things because it goes back to your A to Z um, uh, options things. First of all, when it comes to uh, the missiles, uh, the Israelis in 1978 were trying to convince the Iranians that they absolutely need to have a much more advanced missile program because Iran could not be a really uh, effective uh, regional power unless it did. And they had a card to play because the, um, the U.S. at the time was not willing to sell the Iranians some of these things despite the fact that the Shah bought almost everything that the U.S. could produce. 
um, uh, but not this. And as a result, the Israelis were pushing the Iranians to get this. Once the re uh, revolution happened, they actually did not pursue this. They, they dropped this. But then once the war of missiles began, uh, the war of the cities began during the Iraq-Iran war, the Iraqis, because of their Scud missiles, could hit Tehran from the most western point of Iraq. The Iranians had to be deep inside of Iraqi territory in order to be able to retaliate against Baghdad. And this convinced them, more than anything else, that as a result of their other difficulties, one way of being able to uh, have a deterrence is to have a very strong missile program, which later on was fueled by other events happening as well. But that's the origin of it. And I think that's important to understand. And it goes to the A to Z. And, I, and the reason I'm saying it, I think it's important for us to be humble about our understanding of how they are making their calculations and what they're basing it on. When it comes to the A to Z options, I just want to point out that I think a lot of credit needs to be given to Bibi Netanyahu for reducing A to Z to only A and Z. Because he was pushing the line that this is an existential issue, that this is not something that the Obama administration could kick down the can on. I mean, the nuclear issue was in a state of neither war nor peace. Uh, it was not so dangerous that it could actually precipitate war, and nor was it in a position in which the United States was forced to actually make a deal. But Bibi pushed, 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 and convinced the administration that if they weren't going to do something, he would. And the administration's perception, as well as the Pentagon, was that that would be a disaster because it would force the United States into a war, not as its choosing, but Israel's choosing, which would not be ideal. And what Netanyahu then completely miscalculated, because I think he drank his own Kool-Aid in thinking that the Iranians would never negotiate, the Iranians would never strike a deal, was that the United States actually, instead of choosing war over that peace when those other options were eliminated, that he actually did opt for negotiations and very serious negotiations. And that's why I think he ended up in a scenario that the day when the JPOA was signed, he gave three press statements within 24 hours. I think that is the definition of panic. We have time for one last question. Gentlemen, right there. Um, my question is more, since we are trying to figure out what President Trump will do with the Iran deal, without taking into account that at the same time he wants to be strong enough against Iran, he's sending all those positive messages to Russia. So how are he going to do both at the same time, knowing the region is so mixed? So how can you be enemy of Iran, at the same time be the friend of Russia while dealing with the Syrian crisis? It's confusing to someone who's... Like the region is so small, the, and like what you have been saying, Iran equal Hezbollah, Hezbollah equal Russia. So how can I be friend with Russia and at the same time be enemy of Hezbollah? And all, so how he's gonna do it? Or you are with that aches of well, they used to call it the evil uh, axis. Axis. <laughs> or you're gonna be with it. So it's not one day I'm gonna be against Iran, and the second day I will be with Russia and and strongly believer of the evolution of Russian... It's very con confusing, right? Very confusing. But what's more important, it's, it's very worrisome to Iran that this rapprochement with Russia, this relationship with Putin and Trump, is making Iran worry about their relationship with Russia. And that's a good thing, because Trump's a bigger, better deal guy. Trump will find a way to... His administration will find a way to pull Russia away from Iran. And Iran's worried about that. So that's the play in Syria. What Trump's being told now is Russia is not an ally in the war against ISIS in Syria. They're not an ally. Iran is not an ally at this point. Trump 
believes he can change that. And, and, and we, I would argue that just because you bomb Derazor a bunch of times and indiscriminately target Sunnis doesn't make you an ally in the war against ISIS because all you're doing is helping the Iranians on the ground. They're proxies. So it's, it's complex, but more importantly, it's panicking the regime that the U.S. will now have a di much different relationship with Russia. And Iran's worried about what the U.S. will. And here's, here's a problem for those of us that don't like Russia. Is what is the president going to offer Russia in return? Uh, is Russia in Syria because it wants Crimea and Ukraine? And it'll leave Syria if we don't pay attention to that? Well, we'll see in the coming, in the coming 100 days how that looks. Right now, it's not only confusing, but for me, the best part is also panicking the Iranians. So let me just say I agree with Mike that the Iranians are going to be nervous about any rapprochement between Washington and Moscow. Uh, there's a long history of mistrust and almost racial animosity between the Russians and the Iranians, and I think that it's not a relationship that has much warmth. It's a purely tactical uh, you know, relationship based on calculation. So they'll be nervous. They'll watch and see what happens. But I think from Tehran's standpoint, they've won in Syria. What they want is a government that's friendly enough to keep their lines of communication and supply open to Hezbollah. And that's what they're going to get. And I think for President Trump, he has to figure out how to reconcile, on one hand, very strong rhetoric against Iran and against Iran's influence in the region with a position on Syria that is handing Iran its strategic interests. And I think the Trump administration, I'm sure this is something they're going to have to work out because, unfortunately, life in the Middle East is incredibly complicated. And if it's true, I'll, I'll just say, I'll just end with this. If it's true that the, as the administration has announced, their primary objective is to defeat Islamic State, then to me that suggests cooperation with Iran, tactically, not strategically, as with Russia. And so, you know, the administration may surprise us. It may turn out that they're actually uh, more cooperative with Iran than <clears throat> the Obama administration has been, if the Iranians, and this is where Mike is right, if the Iranians are prepared to actually fight against Islamic State or help the battle against Islamic State. I don't know whether they are. Erdogan and Putin have both hinted that Assad is expendable. I think the Trump administration will exploit that. Assad leaving is an Iranian red line. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to be able to do there. Just um, a few short sentences on this. Um, I do agree that the Iranians are nervous about this, but I think it's also important to understand that if such a deal could be struck, and it remains to be seen, it is not just that the Russians would throw the Iranians under the bus. It is also that the U.S. would throw Europe under the bus, and I think that's important to keep in mind. All right. Thank you for joining us. Okay.